Well, today the NCAA men's tournament tips off with the first four in Dayton. Women's tournament tips off tomorrow with first four action happening in a few of the top four seed sites. And with that right around the horizon, pleased to welcome in. Uh, I had them on earlier this year uh, from the next. Got to see them at the Big East tournament at Mohegan Sun. Always a pleasure. And, you know, it's just really good to have have this person back on, knows their stuff when it comes to women's college hoops, especially the Big East, T. Baker. T, welcome back inside the Igloo. Thank you, Tim. Thanks for having me. Good to see you last week. It was a good Big East tournament and was happy to be there. I mean, absolutely. I mean, before we get into this NCAA tournament breakdown with these Big East teams, Definitely need your assessment of the entire tournament. And obviously we got to see if have a front row seat for this. I mean, that night session, I still can't get over it from, from the Saturday night quarters. I mean, a lot of really great basketball, really good quality teams, but that night session quarterfinal Saturday has to stand out. Yeah. I think, you know, it's a testament to the depth of the league. We talk about it a lot, how the coaching is so great in the big East, how the, the level of play, the caliber of, caliber caliber of players so it wasn't surprising to have such a great tournament I think that the number of games that went down to the wire I really thought Seton Hall was going to pull it out in the quarters um, and then there was another just two buzzer beater last minute games that were that took place that night so I don't think we can ask for more in terms of entertainment and, and really the depth of this conference at this point now we move on to the fun stuff. You know, Big East tournament's great, but, you know, now we get to play for the big stuff, the national championship. Now, obviously, Selection Sunday was a big deal. I was on the edge of my seat praying to God that the selection committee was going to get it right and get all five teams that everyone was ex- – that we were expecting to get into the field. They all got in. So what were your immediate reactions, takeaways from the selection show and seeing – all five of those teams from the Big East cracked the field of 68. Yeah. And, you know, like you said, it's it's been really uh, nice to see how many teams made it in. It's actually the most teams that the Big East has had in the tournament since conference realignment in 2013. So I think it's a testament to how the league has sort of ro- risen to the occasion. I think a lot of coaches mentioned that when UConn came back, it elevates the level of play. It, it you know, holds accountability for the other teams to play excellent basketball and to show up and, and be competitive and so I think it's it's a testament to where the league is at and I was really happy to see that um, St. John's did make it on the bubble I think they're definitely a worthy team um, this is their first appearance since 2016 and 2016 in their 11th overall so um, really exciting times in uh, St. John's right now and I think their coach Tartamella has done a great job and, and is leading the team who's doing um, playing really great basketball at the right time so I'm excited to see how um, and if they're able to make a run. Part of me was thinking by the way um, when St. John's got reviewed I, I was thinking back to coach Tartamella's quotes even after they lost to Marquette he made a very good pitch to the committee zero bad losses valid point I mean the non-conference schedule for them clearly not great but the zero bad losses, I feel like you, you'll you echo this. This That must have said enough to the committee for them to slate them in the field, even if it was one of those last four in. Yeah, and, and you know, the, the team started off undefeated before conference play, so you got to hand it to them, you know, whether or not the, comp, the, the talent was 
there and the other teams they played, like you said, no bad losses. They were competitive in their losses in the Big East. And I think what I picked up on from that team, you know, they left after the quarters, which could be considered disappointing. But I think Coach Tartamella just mentioned how close he is with this team, how locked in they are. And it's teams like that who have that chemistry and that um, really will to win that can make runs in the tournament. So I'm really excited to see how that plays out. I think that's a good place to start talking about St. John's because they are in action um, in one of those first four games in Columbus, taking on Purdue. This is an interesting matchup because St. John's, again, first tournament appearance in seven years. They have a lot of experience, you know, with obviously Kadeja Bailey uh, bringing in transfers like Mimi Reed, Jayla Everett, who arguably was the best transfer in the conference, and uh, Jillian Archer. I mean, you got a veteran starting lineup against a Purdue team that, you know, they gave Iowa some trouble in the Big Ten tournament. I mean, how are you assessing that matchup? And uh, if they win, uh, moving forward, you know, facing North Carolina and the draw, maybe if they get by them, getting Ohio State. Yeah, we'll see how we see what happens. I know the names you mentioned are all really solid players for the Red Storm. They all, you know, had big minutes in the the conference play, uh, sorry, the conference tournament and have, have been delivering all season. Another player is Raven Peoples as a forward. I think she's just a lockdown defender, can can lock down the post and really um, give second chance scoring opportunities for St. John. So the roster's there, the talent's there. Um, Purdue is a classic women's basketball program. They won the NCAA tournament in 1999, and they are um, part of a really competitive Big Ten conference. So it's not going to be an easy game by any means, but I think St. John's has the pieces to compete and get into the field of 64. And then, you know, it's March Madness. Anything can happen when they go against North Carolina. You know, unfortunately, North Carolina didn't get seated in their um, home court that was some folks expectation uh, so that'll be on a neutral court and it's anyone's game I think at that point so I think if they can get past Purdue which I think they have a really good shot at it'll be a pretty competitive matchup with North Carolina as well and I mean obviously the unfortunate thing is you know with the top four seeds uh, tough to if they get Ohio State they're going to be it's going to be tough but Ohio State they have been trending downward. I mean, they had that really great start, but, you know, Big Ten play, I think they had a pretty lengthy losing streak that really bumped them down. So, obviously, it remains to be seen. But first and foremost, just to get into that first-round matchup, obviously, first four, you got to take care of business against Purdue. But, I mean, do you see St. John's winning? Do you have Purdue? I feel like it's a toss-up. I'm going to go with St. John's taking that one. Like I said, they have the momentum. They have a veteran squad. They have the coaching. And I think they're prepared. I really do think that um, it's going to be a good matchup. Again, Purdue goes through the gauntlet of the Big Ten, which is just difficult competition night in and night out. So they're prepared as well. But the way I saw St. John's kind of play down to the wire, the way I see they're locked in in person, I think uh, my prediction was that they'd make it into the, the first round. You know, it's really weird. I try to, you know, like I'll, I'll, I'll be rooting for St. John's for sure. But uh, I think Purdue, I think it was in, even in a loss to Iowa. I mean, it's, I think Purdue played Iowa closer than anyone else in that tournament, which is saying something. Uh, so I hate that I have to do it, but I mean, I'm going to stick with Purdue in a close one. But again, rooting for St. John's, the big, the big X factor or icebreaker, as I like to put it, the experience has to come into play in tournament I mean, Mimi Reed was in the tournament with Ole Miss a year ago. And then Unique Drake's got to play like the Big East Sixth Woman of the Year. And maybe you get Danielle Patterson having the kind of game. I mean, I don't think you should expect the kind of game she had at UConn. But if she can knock down a couple threes off the bench, the bench could be an icebreaker in this game too. So Marquette, the team they that beat St. John's in the quarters, 
Marquette, I was really pleased to see them at a ninth seed. I thought they'd be closer to 10, maybe one of those last four buys. But for Megan Duffy's group, I like the draw that they got as a ninth seed. Well, not for, you know, who's above them in the <laughs> second round, but the South Florida matchup, I really like for them. Yeah, it's an intriguing matchup. I think, um, you know, UConn used to play South Florida a few times a year in, in the American uh, before they came back to the Big East. And so uh, I'm pretty familiar with that team. Jose Fernandez and USF runs a really great program, gets a lot of really great international talent and just has a team that's that's always locked in and um, able to compete, you know. So I think that they are a formidable foe and I saw that matchup and it's one of the ones I've circled and I think it's the first one um after the first four it's it's at 11 30 a.m eastern on uh the Thursday that the, the sorry the Friday the tournament begins and um I think that Marquette you know and those two teams match up pretty evenly I'd say that um you know I was just really impressed with how Marquette worked through the tournament I think Megan Duffy is a great coach who understands her lineup and um in their sort of big three um, with Jordan King, Liza Carlin, and, and Chloe Morata, if those three are clicked in and locked in and, and can knock some shots down, I think it's going to be a really competitive back and forth matchup. Then, like you said, winner of that has to play likely South Carolina um, on their home court. And that is going to be a tough one for any team. So um, really hoping that first round matchup Marquette, you know, can compete and, and put up a good fight. And then we'll see, I mean, again, March madness, but that South Carolina team at home is pretty hard to beat. I I'm with you hundred uh, percent, but that Mark, I mean, you could say that's a toss up too. And I think in order for Marquette to win the game, they're going to need that big three to play like they did against St. John's versus how they looked against UConn because 50 out of 57, they scored against the Johnnies. And then I think they scored, I think 25 combined in the loss to UConn. Like they need the big three to step up and, and lead the way. Cause it's going to be a tough ask for like the freshman, for example, uh, Emily LaChapelle, Mackenzie Hare. I don't think it's really fair to expect those two freshmen as good as they are to elevate their game. If either either of those three are off their game. Agreed. Um, I think, you know, it might be one of the closest matchups. I mean, it's an eight, nine, so it makes sense that, that we see in the first round. I think, like you said, the, the Marquette team that came out and got smacked by UConn um, wasn't executing, wasn't making their shots. Their big three looked out of it. So if that Marquette shows up, it's going to be really tough to beat a competitive South Florida team. But if the team that showed up in the quarterfinals and that, you know, upset UConn earlier in the regular season and um, really finished strong in the Big East Conference play shows up, I think they have a chance. All right. Now, um, the Creighton Blue Jays, I really, six seed, I, I like where they're put in that regard. But I really like the draw that they got because they're going to South Bend. And I've real, uh, so full disclosure, I've been to South Bend, not for college hoops, but I've, I'm a Notre Dame football fan. For me, that place is heaven. Uh, and it's for heaven for any college football fan. But, uh, you know, I went to a pep rally, ironically enough, inside Purcell Pavilion. It's a really great arena. Uh, and Creighton, they're going to get a first four winner um, between, let's see, it was Illinois, which I actually know an assistant coach, Emily Durr, who played at Iowa State. I think she was on the staff at Dayton uh, last year. I think it's Illinois, Mississippi State, if I'm not mistaken. That's right. Yep. Wow, that's a good guess on my part. I mean, I, I like that draw. I feel like no matter who wins between Illinois and Mississippi State, 
with how Creighton's playing, especially how they've come on, um, getting to the semis, nearly knocking off Villanova. I, I like their chances there. And even against Notre Dame because of the unfortunate news of Olivia Miles going down. Yeah, I mean, Creighton is a team that's not unfamiliar with making runs in March. Last year, they made that historic run to the Elite Eight. Um, they have just so many shooters on the team, as you saw um, in their sort of come-from-behind win um, in the quarterfinals of the Big East Tournament. They had to hit those shots. They had to connect on those shots to advance to the semis, and they did. They executed late in the game. Um, I think that, you know, I actually do have them defeating um, Illinois in that first round in my bracket and then also defeating uh, Notre Dame and South Bend because I think if there's a team that's Cinderella that has experience with making runs in March it's it's Jim Flannery's uh, Blue Jays and uh, like you said it's really unfortunate that one of the best players in the country Olivia Miles is down for Notre Dame but they're a different team right now they got smacked pretty hard in that ACC semi against uh, Louisville and so I think without her on the court they're going to struggle but you know it's still their home court it's still Notre Dame and um, my hope is that we get to see a Creighton Notre Dame matchup for a spot in the 16 on the line yeah I'll really love to see it because you know I don't care what anyone says um, Notre Dame even without Miles the, the, I mean they're still a really good team without her is just a matter of you know Miles is probably the difference maker in that game because she's clearly going to be the best, the better of the two point guards. No disrespect, you know, to Rachel Saunders, who's been a viable point guard. I mean, look at the play she made to force overtime, getting the assist to Emma Ronzik, uh, tying the game against Seton Hall in the quarters. I think the big thing is the the experience that Creighton had last year in March is a help because other than Tatum Rembo, they got everybody else back. And the big thing is, I mean, Emma Ronzik was like, not even on either the all big East first team or second team. These, you may have an honorable mention, but look at how everyone else is elevated. I think Morgan Molly, that's a player to keep your eye on because if she gets going, the other players tend to respond the same way. Lauren Jensen, Emma Ronson kind of do the same thing. And I'm um, trying to think of who another player would be that fits that criteria too. Oh my God. I'm blanking on it. It's, I'm trying to think of their starting. I'm, I'm, I know Carly Bachelor comes off the bench. That's going to be important, but yeah, you're going to, they have their big three of Jensen, Molly and Ronzik. They're going to need to be on their game to be even a shorthanded Notre Dame team. Yeah. And I think, you know, um, what's interesting is they were able to take uh, Villanova, the, who was, you know, top 10 team at the time to, um, really the final bucket and it almost was a Yukon Creighton final. And I think, um, yeah, they're a disciplined group. Um, Jim Flannery recruits a certain type of player who can shoot, who can deliver on the perimeter, who, who is really locked into a, a motion offense and that kind of um, gameplay and those kind of offensive schemes. So I think it comes down to hitting shots in March, right? If they're able to hit those shots, if they're able to get that momentum and, and take advantage of some of Notre Dame's personnel problems, I think that they could advance um, to the Sweet 16 again. So the way I see it, I mean, you know, first and foremost, I mean, St. John's, um, like just to just backtrack a little my overall predictions, I got St. John's losing in the first four, but if they do win, they'll probably get bounced by UNC, in my opinion. Marquette, I have them beating South Florida, losing to, uh, you know, running into the bus saw that is South Carolina. And then I got Creighton going to the Sweet 16 like you do, but uh, falling to Maryland, but don't count them out. Creighton can go back to the Elite Eight because, again, you know, been there, done that. I mean, I don't, I mean, Maryland Sweet 16, you know, they've been good, but 
Elite Eight run a year ago, it's still fresh in their minds, and they still basically got the same entire roster back. But let's talk about another team that is primed for a big run, Villanova. I mean, first of all, really relieved to see that they got that top four seed to host at the Finn. The draw they got, I mean, Cleveland State, definitely not a team to sleep on. But if in the second round, they, no matter who they get, Florida Gulf Coast or Washington State, that's going to be tough, really tough. Yes, big time. And I agree. I think it's it was really, um, you know, a testament to the regular season they had. You know, they were one game out of being Big East champs this year. Um, and, you know, they took UConn down to the wire, at least in their two regular season matchups. It wasn't quite the same in the, the tournament final. But the talent is there in, in Maddie Segrist. I mean, she can light it up, as Gina Oriyama said post game of the championship game, you know, sometimes all it takes is to have the best player on the court to win a game. And she is the best player on the court um, most of the time. So I think that they have a really good advantage by playing at home. And it, again, it's something they earned as a testament to kind of how they competed. This will be their 13th NCAA appearance in, in program history and second in a row. So, um, you know, I think what Denise Dillon is building there, head coach Denise Dillon is, is really valuable and it, it, um, it relies on the support cast, though. I think against a team like Washington State, who is just carrying this momentum, Pac-12 champs, if they do meet in the second round, if both teams advance, I think that Villanova's um, supporting cast needs to show up. You know, I think in the, the they were able to compete um, in the postseason in the Big East tournament when Lucy Olsen was showing up, um, hitting her shots, when it's not just reliant on Maddie Segrist to deliver. Um, you know, we saw a lot of good minutes from from Dulce, uh, their, their post player. And I think that if those players can show up and complement what Maddie Segrist is bringing, they can, they can really make a run. If they show up the way they did against UConn in the final, which was kind of flat and, and, you know, the opponents are able to shut down Maddie Segrist, it's going to be tough. It's going to be tough to even uh, get those wins, even on their home court. As hot as Washington state is FGCU is a very tempting pick. I mean, they're, they, they're the perennial, the team in the a sun and, They've, they can prove that they can take anyone on any given night. I'm pretty sure they beat Virginia Tech in the tournament last year, if I have my information right. Is that what happened? My memory isn't great like that, but I think. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, and, and the thing is that, I mean, they've won games and pulled off these upsets. So, I mean, as great as Washington State's been playing, don't be shocked if FGCU is in that spot taking on Villanova. But the big storyline here that I'm looking at with, you know, with Maddie Seegers playing her last games at the Finn, and she earned that right. This her her legacy has already been cemented as the greatest scorer in the history of Villanova basketball, men's or women's. But she can really take a huge step towards immortality by winning two games this weekend and punching their first ticket to the Sweet Sixteen in two decades. Agree, and I I really want that for for Maddie Seegers and that Villanova. Nova program because they are you know they inched into the top 10 towards the, the uh, end of the season um, they are a talented team that's also built for the future I think one thing that that coach Dylan says a lot is that Maddie Segris is invested not just in how she's playing and how she's elevating the program but what's to come and you know if you see this team make it to their first two rounds at home see what that home crowd is like um and watch them advance to Sweet 16, I think other recruits are going to start looking to Villanova as an option. And, and that's Maddie Segrist's legacy as well. Like um, she kind of brought this different caliber of play to Villanova that they haven't seen in a few decades at, 
at that program. And um, I think it's really put them on a map in a different type of way. I would love to see her not lose her last game at the Finn. So <laughs> um, just, you know, I think it it's possible that they can win those two. Our um, editor-in-chief at the next Howard Magda will be covering those games in person. So looking forward to his reporting back on those games. And knowing Maddie Seagrass and the competitor she is, I don't think she's going to a lot, like, if she's got to go down, like, then so be it. Like, she's going to do everything she possibly can to win those last two games she's ever going to play on the court where she made so much history uh, over the last five years. I mean, she redshirted, but the last four seasons, she's made so much history. And what better way than to make that history one final time by punching their ticket to the Sweet 16. And, I mean, I feel like Sweet 16 would be great for them. Um, and that's where I have them going. But, man, imagine if they could take down the, num- the number one seed in that region, number two overall seed, Indiana. I mean, it- it's there. It's hard to see happening, but don't count out Maddie Seegers and the Cats. I mean, lo- best player on the court can make enough of a difference. But, I mean, where do you see uh, Villanova, you know, advancing to and eventually bowing out? Yeah, I do see them. Um, I in my bracket had them falling in the Sweet 16. I have them making it. So um, I do I do believe that Maddie and, and her teammates will deliver on the home court. Um, but they have a tough bracket. There's some tough teams. Um, like you said, Indiana's there. Um, and I think that, again, it comes down to the supporting staff. It has to be team basketball. It can't just be Maddie. I, she can take over a game, but she is every defense's biggest target. So if they're able to lock her down, it's going to be a tough night for Villanova. But if she can deliver and get teammates involved, you know, if Maddie Segris is, is scoring 35 points for you on a, on a given night, you have a pretty good chance of winning a game. And she does that pretty often. So, um, you know, I remember 2000. 3-2004 UConn is we have Diana Taurasi and you don't. I think Villanova has that. We have Maddie Segris and you don't mentality headed into this tournament. Now, I really like that parallel. And now it's a good segue because now we got to talk about the top dog and perennial powerhouse, the UConn Huskies. I They're in the Seattle three. First of all, I'm not a big fan of the two regional system. It just the aesthetic of is i mean i i i understand the logic but like it's just it's just gross i mean like listen like the i i read the article i think it was the washington post posted it and they explained why that was like oh we're trying to eliminate home court advantage but like um do you not see like certain instances where like michigan state for example like in detroit um i'm trying to think anytime a team gets to play in their home state that's a massive home court advantage i don't want to hear any you know oh, we don't want them. Like it's happening on the men's side. So what's wrong with it on the women's side per se, but that, but I digress. Uh, But UConn, the two seed in the Seattle three region, they got a good draw. I mean, they're playing Vermont, good old classic new England matchup, (laughs) but second round, it's not a given. I mean, look what happened with UCF last year, but the way that the draw set up there in Virginia tech's bracket, and Virginia Tech's probably the most obscure one seed by far in this bracket. I mean, no one ex- expected them to rise to this level preseason or hell, even now, but as ACC tournament champions, they 100% deserved it. But for UConn to be in their bracket, I don't think you could have asked for better. No, I think you're right. I think, um, you know, the of the of the four one seeds i think that um virginia tech is the most vulnerable in this case and um you know i think speaking to to 
coach Gina Oriyama, um earlier this week, uh, we were, I was at stores for selection Sunday and got a chance to, to check in with him after practice. He mentioned that, you know, he believes that UConn has the case to be a one seed. It's just that the, the name UConn is attached to them. And, and sometimes committee members don't want to hand that to them. So that's one coach's perspective. I can't say, you know, how that decision played out or what the committee actually thinks. Um, but, you know, I think he he made a case for them being a one seed given their strength of schedule, their, you know, top quadrant wins, those types of things. But that's all beyond my understanding of the committee. Anyway, I think that you're right. They have the, um, probably the, the most um, favorable bracket to compete in. I am interested that, you know, Baylor is in the stores region. Uh, it's just seeing a name like Baylor, a team, a program of that, quality um in their region um a good nikki collin coach team they've struggled a lot this year so it might not be a competitive matchup at all but those uconn baylor games from the past have always been exciting so i have in my bracket a uconn baylor matchup for round two i i'm with you on that i i would love to see it i mean it, you know it's not going to be the same as you know seeing you know those you know like a Brianna Stewart versus Brittany Griner matchup and and it's in that day uh you know simpler fun times also i mean with kim mulkey at the helm for baylor now at lsu the way i see it we all saw this uconn looked like it was like a complete 180 seeing how they played in the Big East tournament i mean they beat xavier xavier by nine and then won <laughs> by a combined 70 points in their three biggest tournament wins again you got to be clicking at the right time in march and for some reason uconn in march it, it, you know I wouldn't blame any team, even if it's the best of the best, for being just a little scared of them. Yeah, I mean, especially in March, this UConn women's basketball team knows how to rise the occasion. And I think the reason is you have Gino Oriyama, Chris Daly, um, and the other assistant coaches, Morgan Valley, Jamel Elliott. There is no more prepared team than, than UConn. It's been that way for decades. And I think it's not that the hope is to win. It's not that the goal is to win. It's that the expectation is to win. I mean, they've been to 14 consecutive Final Fours. 14 Final Fours in a row. That's a ridiculous statistic. And 22 total. Um, they just always find a way to win. Even last season, you know, Paige Beckers was struggling with injury. She came back just in time for the tournament. And they made a run to the finals. So I think it's the UConn brand. It's the UConn legacy that, that also um, is always with them and it shows up in how their opponents play against them and, and in march they just take it to another notch it's always been that way the defensive intensity um and now that we got you know sophomores az fudd and, and caroline ducharme back in the the lineup um you know the yukon coaching staff has a little more flexibility with the rotations it, it opens up the lane because az fudd can hit a three um and you know defense have to respect that so it's it's kind of a peaking at the right time moment for UConn, and we'll see what their run looks like this this March. And with AZ back, that if she gets cooking, I mean, yes, yeah, she could take over games, but the biggest difference there, if teams are keying in on her, we all know who that's going to open things up for, and that's the most outstanding player in the Big East tournament, Olia Edwards, and to a smaller extent, Dorka Uhas. But I mean, the starting five they got of mule if fud comes back into the lineup that'll help but lopez seneschal edwards I, I mean name a better starting five in the country i mean maybe south carolina but i really see uconn like again they're a monster they're gonna be a monster and they're gonna i wouldn't be so shocked if they started steamrolling teams like they did in november and obviously the week they had in at mohegan sun 
Yeah, I mean, you know, the the biggest loss for them this season was AZ Fudge. She went down early in the season, never really consistently came back. And before she went down, they were looking like one of the top one or two teams in the country, right? Because like you said, they have um, All-American, as far as I'm concerned, Aaliyah Edwards in the post, um, who's just putting up double doubles, who's just consistent. She's a hard worker. She's She is the post presence that has to be respected. And then Dorka Juhas, um, is another, you know, six, five post player for UConn. If, if defenses have to focus on easy FUD and, and take away her shot, that opens up the lane in a big way. And those players have delivered all season. So the combination of having that post talent alongside, um, a shooter of AZ FUD's caliber, you know, Gino said it the other day, AZ FUD can take your team on a 20 point run in two seconds because she can just light up her shot. You know, it's like, it's one of those players who can just transform a game and basketball is a game of runs. So if she gets hot, um, UConn is a dangerous team. So I want to ask this because I know after her first game back against Georgetown, I'm glad I was the one that asked the question that prompted the answer. I mean, what were your thoughts on her saying, even with that big ass brace on her, on her leg, you know, covering her knee, how encouraging was it to hear her say, yeah, I, I feel better now, even with this brace on now than I did when I played Georgetown back in January. Yeah. I mean, I was, I was shocked to hear that. I mean, it was also, you know, the UConn um, training staff cleared her and announced it that morning of the quarterfinals that she'd be returning. So it was kind of a surprise, um, sort of a hidden surprise. I think a lot of people knew that that was the goal around here, but that uh, she came back and to hear that she's moving well. I mean, she has like that robo brace on it's huge, like you said, and it's clear that she needs that support, but um, you know, to hear that she's, she's feeling good physically, but not just physically also mentally, that's, that's a big part of coming back from an injury, being able to make the same cuts you used to before you were hurt playing with the same level of aggressiveness. And as far as I saw, you know, she was out there moving pretty well. She's also a great defender. That's another thing. She's a, a great communicator on defense. She um, really can elevate the team defensively. So she seemed to be moving well on defense. And if, if she's feeling good physically and mentally, that's a really good spot for uh, UConn. Given that, again, after that run in the Big East tournament, winning by a combined 70 points, which is just nuts to say, given – the struggles they had in the weeks leading up to the tournament, but, but AZ's the game changer bring uh, with her back. Do, do you see a 15th consecutive final four for the Huskies? I mean, I know I do, but I mean, how do you see it? And, you know, if they go back to the final four in Dallas, you know, do you see them back in the title game for a rematch with undefeated South Carolina? I mean, if you asked me this question about two weeks ago, I'd say definitely not. Um, I think that the chemistry the team was showing and, and just where they were at, they looked like a depleted team. But seeing that tournament team looked like some of the dominant UConn teams of the past. And like we said, no no better prepared team than UConn. Um, I do have them making it to the final four out of their bracket. Um, I do not have them winning the title. I think... Um, to me, South Carolina is just the team to beat. And until they're beaten this season, I don't think they can be beat. So until I see it, you got to prove otherwise because their depth, their coaching, like they, they just have all the pieces and they have this tremendous senior staff, uh, senior class. A lot of folks who, um, you know, I, I write with over at the next feel differently. They feel like South Carolina is a beatable team. They've had games down to the wire, some overtime games. So I don't know. Until I see them actually lose, I don't believe it's going to happen this season. But um, yeah, that rematch would be fun. And, and to think, you talk about the beatability 
of South Carolina. I mean, look what happened February 5th in Hartford without yeah. easy fun. They had six and they almost beat them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, it seems like it's almost like an emerging rival. You know, I think Don and Gino had some words exchanged in the media and it kind of reminds me of the old Tennessee Pat summit and Gino rivalries. So it's good for the sport to see teams that consistently play at the highest level and compete. And so another championship game between UConn and South Carolina, is kind of the new guard and the old guard. I think it's great for the game. It's great for the media. Um, again, I, I just, I can't see them losing, but, um, you know, even with down to the wire games, good teams, experienced teams find a way to pull that out. And they always have this season, even in the close contest. So I'm intrigued to see how that plays out and, uh, you know, how good South Carolina looks when they start playing in this tournament as well. I, I think that's a good place to end this. I mean, again, the, this turn, I'm glad they finally came to their senses last year and put the Marsh man is branding on the women's tournament that is a hundred percent deserved. Number one, number two, you know, as weird as to see a 68 team field on the women's side. I mean, Hey, you know, like the way I see it, you know, gotta have it, you know, equal and rightfully so on both the men's and the women's fields. So, and to give it that feel and like put it at the same level as the men's, even with the, the, pers- the, the bigger history. Cause again, the NCAA women's tournament, I think it's only what the 41st iteration So, yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, Title IX kind of, you know, put a damper on it. We really want to go all the back because I've been studying the history of it. The AIAW, I mean, technically it's five decades almost. So, yeah, it's going to be exciting. And it's good to see five teams in the tournament that from the Big East, as as it should be. But, again, the fun all starts Wednesday um, with the first four games. And I know St. John's, I think they play Thursday, if I'm not mistaken. That sounds right. I think that's right. Yep. But, you know, you and I, I know we're rooting for the Big East. And, um, uh, again, T. Baker, make sure to check out their stuff over at the next and give them a follow on Twitter as well. Always, you know, good content between writing and just covering the Big East as a whole. Uh, T, really appreciate the, appreciate the time. Um, I, I knew this was a must uh, once the bracket came out, just to make sure we had the women's coverage all knocked out. And, you know, you were the first name I thought of. So I, I really appreciate the time. I know you'll be watching intently as I am. And uh, yeah, uh, go Big East, right? Yeah, thanks for having me. I always appreciate catching up with you. And um, I think it's going to be a really exciting tournament, regardless of outcome. And to see the most Big East team since 2013 is really exciting and and a testament to where the conference is at. So always happy to talk about it and analyze these teams. And it's March. We'll see what happens. Going to wrap up this episode. uh, Talk about some NIT action on the men's side uh, coming up right after this. So to end the show, pretty straightforward. Um, Just want to make my quick first four picks. For tonight's games, uh, it starts, again, it's on True TV, 640. Southeast Missouri State taking on Texas A&M Corpus Christi. I mean, I'm not going to go into it in depth, but I'm going to pick Southeast Missouri State to get the win in their first tournament appearance since 2000. Meanwhile, A&M Corpus Christi, second straight year. And then you got Pitt and Mississippi State. This is interesting. Um, Guys to look out for that you probably will remember if you're a Big East fan. Well, the one that clearly sticks out is Greg Elliott, former Marquette Golden Eagle, 
I don't think Mississippi State has anyone, but let me just double check to be sure. Because it's funny, I, I'll like look at these rosters, and if I recognize a name, like I'm like, okay, yep, Big East guy. But they don't have any. So Greg Elliott is the guy that I'm going to be watching for. By the way, AM Corpus Christi, three and a half point favorite. And then uh, Mississippi State's getting two and a half. And by the way, Southeast Missouri State, they got Kobe Clark, former Georgetown Hoya. Which I was right. I had to double check just to be sure, but that's what I found. Um, for Texas A&M, Corpus Christi, zero. So I guess me being biased, I mean, yeah, Southeast Missouri State. And then I'm picking Pitt over Mississippi State. And then we transition to the NIT. Liberty's taking on Villanova, and Nova will be without Cam Whitmore. Liberty, a four-point favorite here tonight. I mean, I don't want to like go into the like, super you know deep bracket dive, but listen, I want Villanova to beat those racists at Liberty so bad. I really do. I want Villanova to win more than anything, not just for the Big East, but to beat a school that I just hate because of their principality, because of their principles. But damn it, no Cam Whitmore is going to be a difference, and Darius McGee's averaging like twenty-two and a half a game, and Villanova without Whitmore is going to be tough. I'm going to take Liberty. As much as it pains me to say. And then you got Colorado hosting Seton Hall. Buffs four-point favorites. Seton Hall, obviously, they took one on the chin in the Big East tournament against DePaul. And they were the only team to get upset as the higher seed in the tournament. Like, go figure as a Seton Hall alum. You know what? Honest to God, I think Colorado is overrated as hell. I respect Tristan De Silva, leading score at 16 points a game. And, I mean, this team had a losing record in the Pac-12, and yet they're a two-seed. Seton Hall's all the way down to a seven. Tell me how that works. And I get it. Like, Seton Hall really doesn't have much to play for because it's the NIT. Kadari Richmond's done for the year. And they came in to this ice cold. I mean, if you if going back to, you know, after they beat Georgetown, the last. They lost four of their last five. And I mean, their only win coming at Providence. And then they had that tough loss to, to DePaul in the Big East tournament. But and here's the thing. As an alum. I get PTSD thinking about Colorado. And what I mean by that is back in 2016, as y'all know by now, Seton Hall, after winning the Big East tournament, after having to beat not one, but two top five teams to win the title, number five, Xavier in the semis, and then number three, Villanova, the eventual national champions in the championship game, the committee sent them all the way out to Denver as a six seed to play Gonzaga as an 11. A Gonzaga team that had DeMontis Sabonis and Kyle Wilcher. 
Yeah, that that's really fair. That's a nice job, committee. And this was the year the bracket leaked. I literally saw that and my eyes rolled. I was pissed about it. And I'm still pissed about it to this day, as you could probably tell. And of course, I see them draw Colorado, and I'm like, <clears throat> I just... Hold, I'm holding back on my words because now they got to go back to that high altitude and you're playing a road game against the Buffs. And by the way, it's not great. Villanova plays at 9 o'clock on ESPN2 slash ESPN Plus and then Seton Hall, Colorado is right after that. 11 p.m. tip. Yeah, that's wonderful for my sleep schedule. Not. But you know what? I'm feeling frisky and I'm... I'm allowed to be biased on this show sometimes, right? I'm going to use my bias pass now. Give me Seton Hall upsetting Colorado. Why? To quote Dave Chappelle's pop copy sketch, why? Because fuck them, that's why. That's going to do it for this episode of The Igloo. I might as well end the show on a Chappelle show reference. Thanks for tuning in, and thank you to T. Baker for joining me to preview the NCAA tournament on the women's side uh, for the Big East. Again, five teams. Get in the field, rightfully so, 100% deserved. And it starts with St. John's in action Thursday as they take on a very good, uh, a solid Purdue team that, like I said, they challenged, they challenged Iowa better than arguably anyone else in the Big Ten tournament, which is saying something. But obviously tonight, you got those two NIT games and the NCAA men's tournament tips off. And then the women's tournament officially tips off tomorrow. So thanks for tuning in. Thanks again to T. Baker for joining me on this episode. That does it for day 14 of the March Marathon here on the Igloo.